So John's Gospel, you might be aware, has a series of I am sayings where Jesus speaks about himself. I am the good shepherd. I am the gate. I am the the way, the truth, the life. I'm the resurrection and the life. These sorts of sayings. And this is the one where he says, I am the bread of life. Now John is full of poetry. And poetry can be a bit tricky, but it's also one of those things that we use to express something that flat prose cannot contain. Have you ever had one of those experiences which has been so, it could be wonderful, it could be traumatic, it could be one of those edge of life kind of things. I remember a whale came into the harbour, it happened again recently, but a dozen years ago when we were at Fairlight and people stood on the shore and this whale would breach like metres away from us And it was like you couldn't just describe it. You needed to use poetry to capture the sense of how wonderful it was. And there's a sense in which that's what John does in his account of Jesus. The meaning is richer than flat propositions can convey. And we enter this story just after Jesus has fed 5,000 people, somewhat miraculously, and then walked across the water, somewhat miraculously, And so it's even more stark that uh, we get the people in this story saying, so what signs are you going to (laughs) do? But we'll get to that in a moment. How many of us here are good Protestants? Who who was taught that it's not by works that you're saved, but by faith? Remember that one? We we used to look askance at the Catholics and go, well, they, they work really hard at trying to be good enough, but we, we're saved by faith, us Protestants. Well, this gets a bit um, confused here because Jesus says there is a work for us to do. This is the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. So is faith now a work? I think it's a bit tricky. But I think what happens here, it... Um, is that we cannot make ourselves right with God. It is a gift and it's about trusting. There's a joke that goes like this. A man who's walking along a beautiful uh, bush track and he comes to a precipice and he's looking out at the view and just near the edge there, it's a bit loose, and he slips and he falls. And as he's falling, he grabs a sapling that's coming out um, from the, the edge of this cliff and he dangling there and looks down at hundreds of metres sheer drop and he looks up and it's about 15 metres sheer cliff and nothing to hold on to. So he starts calling out, help, is anybody there? Because he desperately needed someone to help. And then a voice comes, yes, I'm here. Can you help me? Yes, I can help you. I am the Lord God. Let go of the branch. Is there anybody else up there? (laughs) And this sense that we have that the notion of trusting God is actually really, really hard. We're much more comfortable with something more tangible, with a process that we can see really clearly where we have a good deal of control and the process relies much more heavily on our capacities. It's safer. Right? Putting your hands in the hand of God, what might that mean? Where might that go? 
Trusting God is counterintuitive and counterculture. Because our culture is a culture that says, pull yourself up. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. That's how you prove yourself. We're reading the How to Train Your Dragon stories, the kids' stories. They're fantastic stories. And they echo so much of the culture of our day. And one of the tribes has this saying, only the strong belong, because they're Vikings, of course. So you've got to, you've got to have strong tribes and uh, kick out the runt or... How's it go? I've written it down here. Reject the runt or weaken the tribe. So this notion that you've... And th- there's a sense of you know, social Darwinianism there where we go with what's strong and anything that's weak we just want to get rid of. And that culture of it's up to you. Do we want lifters or leaners? Have you heard that one recently? Are you a lifter or a leaner? And of course it's never as simple as a three-word slogan. But believing changes that dynamic. Grace is an alternate structure of relationships. When we trust Christ, we're accepting that it is not our effort that can save us. It's not lifters and leaners, but those who are realising their calling and where to find fullness of life and those who aren't. So it's not about being a lifter or a leaner. To give you an example of how radically different this way of life is, I would refer you to Luke chapter 16. And I'm not going to read all of that to you, but if you read Luke chapter 16, there's a story there that is frequently entitled The Dishonest Steward. And it talks about a man who's a manager for a wealthy guy and word gets around that he's mismanaging the wealthy guy's money and the the wealthy guy says to the manager, come in and give an account because I'm going to sack you. And the manager goes, oh no, I'm done for, I'm too old to dig and too proud to beg, which would have been his options. And so he gets all his bosses, the debtors, to come in and cuts their bills in half so that when he loses his job, he'll have really good friends in the community because he saved them so much money. This is a horrifying story because here we have Jesus telling a story and it sounds like he's promoting dishonesty. I don't know if you've come across this story before, but it's quite a distressing kind of take in, in some ways. But it's a radical, it's a glimpse of a radical alternative set of relational and social dynamics. You see, what happens is there's a shift from quantitative reciprocal relationships where I do this, you owe me that, you do that, I owe you this, everything's accounted for, it's all you know, on the ledger, you know how we mostly do stuff? You go to the shop, I want that, well you have to give me this much money. It's all very quantitative and reciprocal. We know exactly where we stand and if you've got the money you can get the stuff and if you don't have the money you don't get the stuff. It's very simple. It's a very good way to run groups of people in a sense. But Jesus is hinting at a time when it won't be based on that. It will be based on grace and love and nobody will have to do anything but you will want to do stuff. The change is that the people 
were grateful to this guy and they didn't have to do anything nice to him but he was hoping they would. See the difference there? There's no guarantees. But out of the heart, people might want to do something good. Can you imagine the world functioning like that? Nah. But the kingdom functions like that. Isn't that interesting? The radical, radical difference. It actually subverts all the things that hold our society together. It goes beyond it. So to live the kingdom, you have to believe there really is genuinely another way, even if nobody else believes that with you. That is the work of believing in him whom God has sent. And if you don't think that's work, it's because you've never done it. It's hard. And so the people are appropriately challenged by Jesus when he's saying that they should believe in him and they say, so what sign do you give us? Okay, you say we should believe in you, this is a pretty radical move. What do you got? Why should we believe in you? And as I say, he's just fed 5,000 and then he's, you know, walked across the water. Not enough. Well, we don't know how aware these people were of those events or indeed how aware people who were part of those events were that it was a miracle, like food appeared and they ate it. Did they know that it was a miraculous thing? There's a lot of information we don't have there and they probably didn't have it either. So they might have participated and not been aware. And also we can interpret any set of events according to our pre-decided set of values. We see things and we don't see certain other things. We value certain parts of what's going on and we completely miss certain other parts of what's going on. So an interesting question to ask is what sign would have been sufficient? What would have been the sign that Jesus could give that was so compelling that everyone would have gone, oh, definitely son of God, definitely going to trust this guy. Because he tells another story, also in Luke 16, so homework, go home and read Luke 16, about the rich man and Lazarus. Remember that one? It's just a story he tells about a rich guy and a poor guy who comes and sits at his gates every day and the dogs come and lick his sores, a little bit of graphic information there, and um, they both die and the rich man goes to Hades and Lazarus goes to heaven and the rich man says, can I even just get a a drop of water on my tongue? I'm so parched and can't do that, there's this big chasm. And then the rich man says, well, can you go and tell my brothers about what's happened here because I don't want them to die and end up in the same situation. And Jesus says this. He says, if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they won't be persuaded by somebody rising from the dead. Which I, when I first read, was quite blown away by. Because if someone raised, was risen from the dead in front of me, I'd find that fairly compelling. Well, at least I th- thought I would. But, you know, even today, think of all the ways we could get around that. Oh, well, the the wonders of modern medical science. People are rising from the dead, you know, they're clinically dead and then they come back to life and tell us stories of bright lights or elevator music or something, I'm not sure. Um, We can 
We can work out all sorts of ways around any sign if we want to. We will see what we will see and we will explain away what we will explain away. People are ready to make meaning out of anything and to overlook almost anything. I wonder what convinced you. Why do you follow Jesus? What was the thing that you found compelling? Was it more just a passing interest or you're still checking it out? For me, it's really interesting. I find, I find me interesting. No, the, um, the reason I finally decided to go with God was when I was rejected by my girlfriend. I'd fall, I was deeply in love with her, or the best day young 20-something could be. Well, I was younger then. No, I was 20-something, just. And uh, she broke up with me and I was devastated. And I thought I was doing all the right things. I was going along to church and youth group and I said to God, God, what gives? And I really felt very clearly that God said to me, if you give your heart to me, I will never let it go. That's what I found compelling. I didn't want to feel the depth of that rejection ever again and I thought the most faithful person I could be committed to is God. God won't let me down. God won't reject me. When the people ask for a sign, are they really asking for a sign or are they asking for Jesus to satisfy them? Because the two are different. What are we looking for? A sign or for satisfaction? When we're looking for the one who will fulfil our expectations and our agenda, then we are looking for satisfaction. We're looking for someone who's going to deliver for us. And we always start at this place, I think. I was looking for someone who would protect me from rejection. That's my agenda. I want to be safe. Protect me from a broken heart. That's where we start. You've probably been part of prayer groups where people have lists of requests of the things that they want done. This is my agenda. This is what I'd like God to deliver for me. I want satisfaction in these areas. I've done it myself. I pray like that frequently. We can't help it. We do it. But that's different from seeking a sign because a sign is beyond me and beyond you. Mostly our agendas are about ourselves and you know sometimes even our investment in doing something that seems to be good is about helping ourselves feel good about ourselves. So we're very compromised people all the time. Jesus models a self-giving that is so alternate to every other kind of way. The kingdom way really is a very different way. Jesus gives because giving of yourself is the fullness of life. That is the kingdom place. That is the richness place. It's not in doing it so that you can get something. It's in doing the doing of it that is good to do kind of thing. And a sign points to that. Uh, Jesus' life, his teaching, his death, his resurrection point to this value set, this way of living that has eternal consequences. It's a whole alternate value system. Uh, And as you read uh, the Gospel accounts, you can see many of the things that we overlook every day, Jesus saw as important. The people who were blind and lame and out of sorts, the woman who was bleeding internally and a a social leper, 
They became features of Jesus' encounter with the community. We might skirt around them. We might overlook them. They're just too complicated or tricky or whatever. And so many of the things that we would invest pretty much all our time and energy in, Jesus would continually discount and say, what is it if you gain the whole world and lose that which is most important? You know, the guy that builds his barns because he's got so much stuff and we're such good barn builders, aren't we? Gathering our wealth and our stuff and the time comes and our lives are required before God. I said a moment ago that um, I found the compelling thing about following Jesus that uh, God's faithfulness would mean I wouldn't face rejection. Well, the twist in the tale there is, as I've gone on in my journey as a person growing in the ways of God as a disciple, I've felt more and more called to, and in fact not just called to, but I'm desirous of being more and more vulnerable. I actually want to engage people more honestly. I want to speak truth more accurately. I want to share more of myself with more people and hear more of you more honestly. And interestingly, the correlation of that is there's a far greater chance of rejection. Isn't that funny? I chose God to avoid rejection and in the choosing of God, I found a path that leaves me into the place where rejection is more likely than it ever was before. But I want to go there now because that's the place of life. That's the rich place. So I'm not being tricked or coerced, but I just think that's interesting. See, when we come to Jesus, we get Jesus. Bit of a no-brainer really, but it's not a ticket to heaven. Some people come to Jesus because they're scared of dying and they want to make sure that they'll get to heaven. Now when you come to Jesus, you get Jesus, not a ticket to heaven. You don't get an insider with the ear to the Almighty who's open to being manipulated by our fears and our agenda. No. You get Jesus. Jesus welcomes us as his friends and his friendship progressively changes us. Just as your friendship with anybody will change you. You form attachments. You can't help but care about them and that care will shift you. When we come to Jesus, we get Jesus. Our deepest desires shift to become similar to Jesus' desires. And so Jesus gets us. And absolutely everything changes. Let's pray. Lord, you really are the, the true bread, the bread of life that comes down from heaven. And when we get you, you satisfy us in a way that we didn't even know we needed to be satisfied. You don't necessarily give us the things that we were going after. You give us things far more important than that, far more satisfying than we knew. We thank you that you continue to show your grace to us, to call out to us and invite us on the journey with you. And we want to say yes to you and discover all the good things you have for us. In Jesus' mighty name we thank you. Amen.